Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, the pirates of the golden age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose. And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. This week, our guest is Sasha Celestial One, co-founder of Olio, the neighbourhood food sharing app, which not only prevents tonnes of food being wasted each week, it creates critical connections within communities. Olio came about in 2015 when Sasha and her co-founder Tessa realised they both cared a lot about the issue of food waste, so decided to give themselves a year to make something happen. They conducted market research and found that one in three people are physically pained throwing away good food, so there was definitely appetite for their ambitions. But like all good pirates, they also knew that for it to work, they would need to resist being overwhelmed by the scale of the challenge, start small and keep it as simple and as human as possible. Suffice to say, six years down the line, the app is now making a massive impact. So in this episode, we dig into how exactly they got there. We hope you enjoy. Sasha, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really, really excited to have the conversation with you. I'm a huge fan of Olio and what it's achieved over the last few years particularly I remember seeing some of the kind of early food sharing apps and projects come up years ago when I was working with various social entrepreneurs and this feels like it's just taken off in I don't want to use unprecedented but unprecedented way like it's just kind of totally exploded is that what it feels like for you or does it feel like it's been a really really long journey first thanks for having me and I'm glad you're a fan the answer is yes and it depends on the day on the one hand, it still amazes me when I look in our dashboard and I see another 1,000 people or 5,000 people or lately over 10,000 people have signed up in the last 24 hours. And part of me is still like, wait, where? how did they hear about us? Where'd they all come from? You know, And I'm sort of detached and each new person who joins up and believes in what we're doing still gives me that sort of rush of we're onto something, we've got momentum, this is a movement kind of satisfaction. And then on the other hand, we've just crossed 3 million users. 
And our goal is to have a billion people using Olio by the end of the decade to share our most precious resources, because I know that's where we need to get to. You know, if we want to actually really put a few dents in terms of, you know, decreasing the carbon emissions that are due to household consumption and food waste, like we need hundreds of millions, billions of people to change their behavior and engage in something like more circular form of consumption, which includes sharing. And so simultaneously, we have so far to go. But at the same time, the last year specifically, the momentum has been palpable, palpable, whatever. I've been able to taste it and sense it. And so that's quite exciting, and it's hard not to fantasize that those tailwinds are just going to continue to get stronger and stronger and get us to where we need to. The numbers seem quite staggering, to me at least. But just to dial back a little bit, can you just give everyone a little bit of an introduction into how you even got started with Olio? Like, How would you describe your journey as an entrepreneur up until this point? Sure. I describe my journey as a bit of a coming full circle. And it starts without going too much down memory lane. My parents were hardcore hippies. I grew up in a very sort of untraditional home. I'm the eldest of six kids. You know, I was born at home. I've never been vaccinated. I was raised a vegetarian. My parents made my last name. Lots of things that you might sort of associate with that type of upbringing. But we also grew up without a lot of money. At the same time, my parents were entrepreneurial and they had started a business, but it took many years until I was in my teens before that it was actually a cooperative began to be sufficient for our house. So I have a lot of memories as a child of it was my job to help my mom put food on the table and we would go out and collect things that other people threw away. So I learned how to dive in a dumpster at a young age. You know, I hated that as a kid. I wanted normalcy and new clothes from the mall and financial security. And so I sort of rebelled and moved as far away from that type of model as I could. You know, I moved to New York, I became an investment banker and then I went to business school and and then in management consulting. And I spent about 15 years really pursuing a relatively risk-averse, financially secure career. And those are the sort of qualities I was optimizing for. Of course, I learned a lot and met some super inspiring people and did some things that I'm proud of, but I always felt a bit like a fish out of water. When I was on maternity leave in 2012, that I sort of had to have that conversation with myself about, you know, I didn't want to go back to work and hire a nanny. That made no sense economically. It wasn't going to fit with my vision of what I wanted for myself as a mother and as the person who's making a contribution to the planet. I was working at American Express at that time, and I was managing sort of joint venture partnerships across Europe to sell more credit cards. And it just wasn't a good enough reason to be away from my child and and, and be out of the country. And so that was the start of me starting to think about how I want to live my life differently. And whilst I was on maternity leave, I was able to opt for redundancy because there was a reorganization and it was such a blessing in disguise. And I figured out that if I dramatically reduced my expenditure, I could live comfortably for a while while I figured out what I wanted to do. But a long story short, I did start a local small business in Crouch Inn in North London that I had Visions of Scaling um, is London's first pay-as-you-go childcare provider, really helping to sort of fill a gap in the market for flexible childcare, which is something as an expat I desperately needed. It took only about nine months to get it to a point where it was self-managing and profitable, and it turned out to be quite a nice little lifestyle side business, but it wasn't something I wanted to scale. I became significantly less baby crazy after <laughs> being a mother for a year. And at that point, I also knew I wanted to have bigger impact beyond my own immediate community and do something much more scalable. 
So that was in early 2015. Tessa, one of my best friends and co-founder, had been on a similar journey going 360 back to her roots as the um, sort of daughter of Yorkshire dairy farmers who would never dream of letting good food go to waste. And we came together and we said, let's put our 30 years of experience into doing something that's scalable and can have huge environmental impact, which was our passion area. And at that point, we really had no idea that food waste was such a big problem. And $1.2 trillion worth of food goes to waste every year. It's between 35 and 40% of all food goes to waste. It's scandalous, especially when you think about the number of people who are hungry, the impact on the environment of that. And so that was the genesis of the idea for Olio. And yeah, it really is coming back to the values with which I was raised. My mother is incredibly proud of me, as is my father, but I'd not have scaled Olio if we didn't bring the rigor and experience that we have from our sort of commercial and strategic backgrounds to the table. I really, really just applaud that, having spent a long time in the world of social enterprise and often being confused why there is this false dichotomy of profit bad or, or business bad, when of course there are aspects of all sides of the story that become problematic, whether it's policy, public sector, NGOs, charity, and it's about doing it well and bringing the best of both sides. So I love that story and that journey. How do you bringing all of that to bear? Because there's something about the journey that your customers go on, and it's fantastic to see the growth that you've got. But one would imagine from the business knowledge that you've got that you know you're at the you're at the early end of the bell curve, the early adopters, the people that would be you know around this, and you'll have done the modeling yourself, and you'll know it from other business aspects. But what business can sometimes trip up on is just taking a rational approach. And this decision is also a largely emotional one from your customer's point of view. So what are the psychological barriers that you expect to come next as you go from very early adopters who are already you know, wedded to this agenda and the big middle where you're really going to kind of hit that huge number and that kind of huge impact that you can have? What do you anticipate the psychological, emotional barriers of people are going to come in your direction? How are you going to overcome them? We've done a lot of work around crossing the chasm and thinking about how we go from having a product with a very niche, passionate audience, um, our early adopters, to getting into the mainstream. And the irony is with the early adopters who are already aware of food waste as an issue and have deep hatred for it and are galvanized to put an end to it, they're not the source of household food waste for the most part. They figured out how to use up all of their bits and freeze all their bits and repurpose their leftovers, etc. What you have is this gap of understanding because those individuals, which is the vast majority of households in the UK who waste close to a thousand pounds sterling worth of food every year, 25% of their grocery shop, perfectly good food going to waste. They're not aware of waste. They're not aware of the consequences of it and they don't care about it yet. And so what we've really been doing is trying to find within the mainstream segments of users and we can start at the top and find those who are influential within their segment, bring them on board, bring them on that journey in maybe a high touch way, working with potentially influencers, et cetera, et cetera. And then they become self-referring within their own segment because, and I'm thinking specifically the segment that we're really targeting, we've been working on for the last year is moms with children in primary school. And they all talk to each other, right? And they have WhatsApp groups and Facebook groups and they're on Peanut, Mush and all the apps. And that's been our strategy. Now, we could have gone with students. We could have gone with eco-warriors. You know, there's lots of different sort of segments in the quote unquote early mainstream or mainstream. Obviously start with the early mainstream. And we've decided to pick them off sort of one by one because that way our marketing, our messaging, our resources, our PR outreach, it's all sort of 
within one segment and then we hope for that word of mouth within that segment get to full saturation in that segment then move on to the next segment that's how we've been thinking about it this is so fascinating because i don't know if it's really who you're targeting as opposed to how you're targeting them it really reflects a kind of wheel and spoke network model rather than you being olio trying to reach like masses and masses of people you're using individuals as these connectors within their own communities and audiences and essentially they're kind of doing your work for you and that was the thing that really interested me the most when I was really diving into it was the way that you've blended an app so that you know the smooth technology of it all but with a very very human centered strategy in that from the way that it started and you talk about making the design of it as simple as possible and as close to just a WhatsApp group and then you know handing out flyers to start off with so that it's very much peer to peer word of mouth and then also your use of volunteers now the fact that it's really clear on the website you can volunteer for 10 minutes and still make a difference by just posting something or you can do a couple of hours a week doing that peer to peer communication and the, and then the trust with the brand sort of follows through, which I just think is, again, it's so clever. And But it's not inauthentic either. I'm wondering, have you looked at other companies, brands, businesses that could maybe start to adapt or use this sort of blended human and technology model better? Because it, it feels like that's the secret why you're, you know, you're gaining so much traction. I don't know necessarily if I've looked at others, but I, just a couple of days ago, I did a session for other startup founders on content distribution best practices. And I described sort of what you're describing, which is a community-led content creation and distribution strategy. What we've done is, yes, we've absolutely realized that Olio is a brand telling people to wake up and uh, start sharing their half a head of broccoli with a stranger is a lot less effective than, you know, a peer, right? Who says, oh my God, I did it. It was weird. I didn't know what to do, but then they were really nice. And they sent me a picture afterwards. Like once we get people to try it, our retention's really high. Our net promoter score is insane. And they want to tell other people about it. We're a free food sharing app. We haven't properly figured out monetization. In order to reach as many people as possible, like I described earlier, to have the impact that we want to have, we need a really cost-effective way to get out to as many people as possible. So what we've done is sort of built this virtuous cycle where to break it down, and this is a very simplified version of it, but if you come to the app and there's not a lot of people or not a lot of listings near you, you will be very heavily prompted to take responsibility or to step up and build a food sharing network in your community. And you can then go on this path where you claim a volunteering role, which can be anything from a digital ambassador to something much more sort of labor intensive. And when you claim that role, you get rewarded and you get animation and you get a badge and you get things to make you feel good about that. But then you basically get put on a pathway whereby, for example, with the digital ambassador role, every couple of weeks, forever, you're going to get sent a task that takes two to three minutes to do. That's your sort of your chore, right? And it's generally evergreen content and it's all just about spreading the word. So it's sharing the story to my stories or whatever, or click here to WhatsApp 10 friends with pre-written content. And so that's how we've sort of built in this grassroots, self-sustaining, zero cost acquisition growth model. But then the other thing is that's just to spread the word and acquire new users. 
But then at key touch points in your journey, when we can see that you've just rated someone five stars, when we can see you've done your fifth pickup, when we can see points of satisfaction, we interject and we ask you over and over and over, tell us your story, upload your picture here, write a little testimonial. So we capture content constantly from our users. Then we have your name, your photo, and your testimonial. And there's a few things we do with that. Obviously, we use it across socials, right? We put it in our newsletters. We pick the best ones. We put them in to volunteer newsletters. We put them on our website. We put it in a Twitter feed that's just for stories. And then that, in turn, just a treasure trove of case studies for journalists. Because journalists always call up and they're like, in 10 minutes, I want you to find me someone who's between the ages of 19 and 20, vegan, and lives with their grandma who saved carrots last week or whatever. Like they always have something quite particular in mind. So now we've got this long, you know, thousands of people who shared their story that we can pick through and then we can sort of match them with journalists to then help spread the word even further. So it's a user-generated content because we're really clever, I think, about capturing in an automated way that content. And it is a hybrid model because we're asking people to do often really simple things. And a lot of times it's order some flyers, hand them out, put up a poster, print this out. But at the same time, it's sort of self-service, open source, empowering people to do it through an internet-based product. You know, having cracked one of the big, hard challenges of behavioral change and getting people to do something that's, you know, particularly intimate, you know, close to home, literally, and all of these things, you know, without wanting to overstretch yourself, what are the opportunities or competitors for adjacencies? Because if you've got people to get their heads around sharing and waste reduction in a specific, like food, your opportunity to continue to affect behavior in water, in clothing, and all the other things that also have these huge knock-on effects. Now, I guess there's other people doing similar-ish projects with different topics. So you either create a meta network or you take on the position of responsibility. Now we've changed part of your behavior. Can we change the rest? But at the same time, you've got this significant growth and success usually comes with focus. How are you balancing that kind of opportunity? It's a great question. And it's, it's what we call a layered product proposition. And food sharing was first layer, mm -hmm. right? And then we added on non-food sharing, which we don't talk a lot about, but it's where huge amounts of growth is coming from. Shampoo, nappies, clothing, books, toilet, you know, anything you've got, that you can't really resell or you don't can't be asked to resell. Frankly, we have lots of really high value things come on. You just want someone to come and take it away and make sure it doesn't end up in the bin. Stuff that usually a charity doesn't want, right? So last week I tried some shampoo. I saw it in my Facebook feed. I knew it wasn't going to be as good as Allure said it was. But my friend who works in fashion said that she'd heard good things about it. So I bought it and it just was awful. So I put it on the app and let someone else experience that non-foaming shampoo shampoo that was better for your hair but you know it's a perfectly good example of the stuff the clutter that we have in our homes right that would be better off with someone else so we added a non-food sharing then early last summer to your point we recognized that actually we are becoming an authority and we are being constantly asked by our users what else they can do to live a greener life so we introduced this whole section in the app called goals which is basically sort of swipe right to save the planet. It's a tender style interface with hundreds of different goals, which are super simple, many of them, and some of them are harder, like swapping to green energy. By the way, if you do that, we're going to get an affiliate revenue from it, but that's not our overall purpose for doing it. Some of it could be as simple as, you know, storing your avocados differently so they don't go brown early. And you can claim these challenges or these goals. You can only claim a couple at a time. And you get points for them, and it's linked to a system of points and rewards and status. To be fair, that point system is only halfway built, and the rest of it's coming in a few weeks. 
But this also provides an excellent way for people to engage with the product. So when there's not something transactional happening right now on their doorstep, because the reality is demand is so strong, right? So half of all food listings are requested in 23 minutes. 80% of everything that's put on the app is picked up. So which means when you open it at any given point in time, things requested so quick, unless you turn on the just gone filter, it's actually hard to get a sense of how liquid the activity is. And so you open it and you're like, okay, there's only two things near me. And then we don't see the 20 things that were added in the last 24 hours. So goals also provides people with something else to do when there's nothing transactional near them or their community isn't yet as dense or active. And then in October, we launched in response to behavior that we saw from our users during the pandemic, we launched a section called made, which is homemade food and handmade sustainable crafts at the hyperlocal level. And right now, we might have 26,000 listings in that made section of people who are selling homemade face masks, sourdough bread, you know, and of course, we had work with local authorities to make sure that the people were selling food or food registered. It wasn't as simple as sort of turning that on. But we started out as the food waste stopping app. And I think where we're going is everything hyperlocal and sustainable app, connecting people to sort of reinvent consumption in some ways. So instead of thinking new, expensive, linear, distant, right? We're thinking hyper-local, handmade, homemade, reused, recycled, free, meaningful. And in that way, we can put the brakes on the machine that is driving mass consumption to the devastation of the planet. And so just to keep on with that layered product proposition, which is sort of like a Netflix strategy, And we've basically, we've got some drama and now we've put in horrors, right? Like there's going to be lots of more use cases that will be relevant to people, but all focused on hyperlocal. So next is coming borrow, which is a section in the app will be, you know, there in the next sort of two months where you can lend and borrow for free, not super high value, but items that you don't use very often, like tennis rackets or a drill, you know, then not everyone on the street needs to have a drill, you know, the average lifespan of a drill is 19 minutes. It's used once, it's thrown away, never used again. So after borrow, there's a whole series of additional product features that are all hyper-local, all around sort of sustainability that we're going to continue to layer on. You'll become the Amazon of like the ethical version because it is that thing of you just want to have everything in one place. There's so much convenience. Yeah, and I think the reality is if it's just food sharing, we're never going to get a billion people to use it. Even if we know that we need a billion people to use it, what you can do is you can attract people in from a different vantage, right? They're like, oh, I don't want, I'm not interested in food sharing or homemade cakes. But you know what? I really would like to borrow a circular saw. Let's see how an insurance feels about that from a neighbor. And then they come in and they're like, oh, wait, that neighbor is also doing this and is also doing this. And then they go on their own individual journey to arrive at ultimately where we want them to arrive at, which is wasting less. I'm 85% convinced by your strategy, but there's a few questions. Well, I remember Library of Things started doing the sharing and the borrowing quite a while ago. And I remember visiting the one that's in the library in Crystal Palace. And there's something that I quite like about the physicality of it. I've been going in, I can see the tools, (laughs) which I wonder for some people, particularly maybe older generations will never go away. And I definitely experienced some challenges working with communities trying to get some stuff done when there really is a bit of an aversion to technology still and even going onto an app, downloading an app. Is there anything you do to try and include people who really wouldn't want to do that at all? 
Yeah, I mean, that's why from day one, we've made a web-based version of the app. So people don't have smartphones and are uncomfortable using a smartphone can access Olio. It doesn't have all the bells and whistles, but it's functional. And we find that's really helpful. And one of our core values is inclusivity. I love Library of Things. I love what they're doing. And we're not trying to be sort of the digital Library of Things. Even if you just think about like a Halloween outfit, what we've heard from our users is they want even more ways to share more however you define that, within their community. And so people have come to us and said, I could go around my house right now and put on a popcorn popper, a rice maker, some tennis rackets. I only use maybe two or three times a summer. And I say, you know, if a neighbor wants to borrow those and then bring them back, that's fine with me. What we're trying to do is quite complimentary to Fat Llama, our library of things, and, and all of the others that have provided borrowing solutions to the community. On its own, I think it'd be hard to launch and scale something that's a borrowing solution or borrowing product because by definition, infrequent use cases. And when you try and build a marketplace for an infrequent use case, that's hard, two-sided marketplace. Like it's hard enough to build a marketplace. Well, the good thing about food is you think about it three times a day. <laughs> if not more. In doing a bit of the backstory reading on the company, the one thing that really, really interested me was I think a comment you made in describing how Olio has had a few rounds of venture capitalist funding to get started. And actually, as we've been talking, I've been thinking, wow, God, I could get so much more done with <laughs> some startup funding. And um, you mentioned that you have found that you've got more funding from female investors or when you've been pitching to female investors than male investors. Your success rate that you'd got sort of upwards of 70% success rate when it was female investors, but more like five to 10 when it was pitching to, to men. And I think the article goes on to say, you know, that the sector isn't particularly diverse and it would be good to have more women giving out the funding in the first place. But in lots of conversations I've had about gender pay gaps and lack of diversity and things, it always seems to come down to something, something more that is more, that the gap exists because of something more cultural, something to do with the not so much having women just talk to women or give money to women, but the fact that why is it that men maybe maybe don't trust female founders as much or maybe they aren't connecting as much with the brand or the mission of the brand? So I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. And do you think it's something more deeper and more cultural or do you think it could be solved by just having more diverse workplaces? I think I lean towards the lateral because I'm like a relentless optimist, I guess. It's true, less than 1% of VC funding in the UK goes to female founded teams. I can't remember what the figures is, but I think it's approximately 88% goes to all male founded teams. And in the middle, you've got the variation. And that's not reflective of the number of opportunities that are coming through across the investment. There's lots of evidence to show that women are often asked negative confirming questions and men are often asked positive confirming questions, right? Like, oh, that's great. So how do you plan to grow is a much more sort of positive confirming question, which is, oh, that's great, but how are you going to prevent competition from stealing your idea? This is a negative sort of question. For rightly or wrongly, Olio is actually a very female product. So three-fourths of our user base is women. And that's probably a bit to do with many households, women are responsible for the fridge and the pantry and, and that domestic consumption and that domestic waste. And so we would speak to male investors and they couldn't relate because they don't do the grocery shopping. They don't know if they have any food surplus and they certainly don't know what happens if it's a problem. 
I think that there's just a sort of lack of understanding of what need that product is solving for if you can't relate to the need yourself. And so what you can do is surround yourself, I think, with people who do have an insight into the potential for products and services that you can't relate to. So have your own little advisory board, people that you aren't necessarily going to be able to relate to from a product perspective and assess the potential. So for me, I think that's sort of the gap. It was a very informative way of explaining because I reflected that my last questions had a negative confirmation bias. So, you know, I need to watch out myself. I absolutely asked you, why is this going to go wrong? So, uh, yeah, it's gone slightly red. And I'm just going to try and make sure this one's not. But I was thinking about it as you were going through this. And it seems that there's, um, you know, very often the kind of the world of socially led business or environmentally, they can kind of become defined by that. And you don't seem to have done that. You, you know, your, your brand is cool. You've got this great community, you know, the app, the technology all speaks for itself. It doesn't, it doesn't in any way come across as if it's like an eco entrepreneur brand. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I just have seen that that kind of badging can trip things up where with the power that you've got in the community that you're amassing, do you set your sights in terms of the macro problem? Because it seems you're doing a brilliant job addressing the need. There is food waste and there's people who would like to waste less, but there is also a supply problem in that there is a huge industry and you called it, you know, the the machine driving consumption. And it seems to be improving, but for a few years ago, there was lots of evidence around the supermarkets, Tesco kind of being named as the worst, but all of them involved in everything, buy one, get one free offers, but three for two, all these things that drive people to buy more food than they need and the contributing factor that makes to the problem. So do you see them as the enemy that you're fighting against? I mean, maybe that's deliberately setting up an unnecessary conflict, but what's your view on them? What's your, what's your relationship with them? Do you see them as part of the solution? Could you bring them aboard? Are you working with them in any way or how do you perceive them? It's an excellent question. And it's one that I think at first glance, it's really easy to blame the supermarkets. Yeah. But the reality is that food waste at the retail level is less than 5% of all food waste along the supply chain. And in fact, really, sorry, just say that one again. I just, it's less than 5%. And if you're looking really? at sort of, yes, it's probably more like two and a half percent. If you're looking at just the sort of big players who are the most motivated and incentivized and have set the biggest public targets. So Tesco made wow. a pledge to be zero edible store waste in 2018. We currently work with them at 1,600 stores. We'll be at nearly 3,000 stores in six weeks. This is how we've monetized. We have an army of volunteers called Food Waste Heroes who we recruit, food safety train, and dispatch to the stores to collect the unsold food at the end of the day. We've rescued a million kilos in the last sort of nine months, and we're on track for 5 million this year. So the Tesco is incredible, actually, in terms of the only supermarket that has full transparency into their food waste, demands or is working towards demanding their suppliers do the same, and pays a lot of money to fair share to us and to lots of other initiatives in order to reduce their food waste. But It's a really big brand and people love to uh, diss it. Anyway, I love Tesco. I could go on about all of the good things that they're doing. Not all the supermarkets are that far along the journey, but often where Tesco goes, the others follow. And we currently rescue food from loads and loads of supermarkets who pay us for that service. Just to go back to that, though, the reality is that it's a very small part of the supply chain. And actually, post-farm gate in the UK, 71% of food waste takes place in the home. It doesn't look like a lot when you're looking at your own fridge, but there's 27 million households. And if everyone's throwing away a quarter of their weekly grocery shop at scale, it adds up to the vast part of the problem. 
which is bad because no one is aware of it, but it's good because it means that we have the power to change it and we can do it quickly. And so it's easy to blame the supermarkets and they have a really important role, of course they do, in making decisions about how they source food, their supplier practices and you know whether or not that results in perfectly edible food not being purchased and sold because it didn't meet certain cosmetic requirements. The packaging that they use to food, which is another very complicated area, of course there's too much plastic packaging, especially cellophane, etc. But sometimes if you're actually looking at it from a carbon analysis, if you put the cellophane on the cucumber, it makes it last two and a half weeks. If you don't, it goes off in two days. Most people don't eat a cucumber in two days. So then what's the impact of the wasted half of the cucumber? You know, it starts to get quite complicated. So I guess what I would say is that we are working with a lot of the retailers. We're in the middle of scaling up to work with more of them, which I'm super excited about. I think that they have really come to recognize that food waste is on the agenda here in the UK. I mean, we've got a UN Sustainable Development Goal by 2030 to have food waste globally. And that has come down from the EU, from the UK, you know, at the municipal level. There are targets everywhere and people are working really hard. By people, I mean the supermarkets working hard to address it. I would be really encourage people to have an honest assessment of their own food waste footprint and to try and like get into the mindset of every sort of carrot counts, every banana that I didn't eat counts because at scale, that's how we've got ourselves into this climate crisis. 60% of greenhouse gas emissions are direct response to the decisions we make within our own home. I stand <laughs> utterly corrected, I have to say, and I'd like to think that I'm relatively well-informed and that completely skews my sense of the real statistics and the facts behind it and the responsibility. And I so emphasize earlier on with your correct choice, got two small kids and all the shopping, all the, you know, the stuff they don't eat, the kind of fussiness, you know, the amount that the, the waste that comes through. This is the third time I've now felt like I've gone hot under the collar. So thank you for re-educating me. I have also just I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. The supermarkets have a long way to go. It's just that the scale of food waste is so big yeah. That actually, even if they get to 100% zero waste, it's still less than 5% of the total waste problem. But 72% to 2.5%, you know, the responsibility sits with us. I just, yeah. you know, that is, that is an excellent statistic. I will no doubt be quoting for the next few months. So thank you for the education. I've also never heard anyone say I love Tesco with such zealousness because I grew up with my dad. My dad hates Tesco with like a deep passion, I'd say. So we were never allowed to even have a Tesco bag in the house. If he spotted one, we'd, <laughs> it would be like, where did this come from? <laughs> did, you, did you go in there? I mean, it's partly because there was a huge Tesco built on a, you know, in a part of the town when I grew up and no one wanted it and it was overridden, etc. He did some work with them and there were some unethical practices, but this was quite a long time ago. And also I'm very aware and that things move on and they're moving on quickly. And as you say, you can be really good in one area and not so good in another either. I'm kind of not 100% there with you on the individual responsibility thing. Perhaps I don't feel personally that I, I waste a lot of food, but that's because I live alone. So I can be quite specific about what I buy and when I use it. But also, I don't know, there's something in me that rankles that individuals have to shoulder the burden of solving climate change when so much of it is a systemic problem. And that, especially within a capitalist system, we are optimised to you know, live a particular lifestyle or we're told, you know, you, you essentially won't be successful or you essentially won't be able to earn money. So people have become conduits of convenience culture and that's something that fuels food waste. So I think that you do have to take personal responsibility, but you want people to step up, but you don't want them to feel blame because blame goes into shame and then shame just, I think, creates apathy. 
Yes. Different people are motivated by different things. And if you feel overwhelmed and helpless, it's not going to help anyone make positive behavior changes. I think it's really easy to think, you know, you have to be perfect in how you go about living your life. I'm certainly not. You know, I don't always take my thermos with me everywhere. Sometimes I forget. You know, I don't always remember to have my keep bag with me. There are times when I don't eat something I've ordered and I have to throw it away. There's a big difference between thinking that nothing you do makes any difference and therefore giving up and recognizing or adopting an attitude of you have hundreds of options or choices a day and they might seem inconsequential or too small to matter, but collectively together at scale, it can be transformational. I think that's more the mindset I'm trying to convey. Of course, there's such a massive role for regulation, for policy, for bold leadership in industry that can result in more systemic, longer-term permanent changes. But in the absence of that, which can be you know, derailed because we elect for four years, at least in the U.S., someone who's it's not, this isn't high on their agenda, I do think we can't wait and we need to all take action now. I really chime with that message because I've gone from you know, a few years ago, it's absolutely down to all of us. We've all got our role because we can't rely on anybody. No one's coming to save us to then. I think it's easy to also get caught up in this kind of like great big narrative of good versus evil. It's, 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 it's Greta Thunberg versus Donald Trump. It's environmental campaigners versus capitalism. And in a way that can be power reducing, you know, you, you devolve yourself to the, to the systematic status quo and, and the problems of it. And so a new level of nuance to that conversation where it's collective intelligence, you know, and our combined effort really does make a huge effect when you can see it hit a kind of cultural level. How does that play out like big, big picture? I, I wonder, you might not be able to say all this, but to hit a billion people, if Along the kind of classic scale-up road, organizations would try and hit a point where then they are bought or large parts of them are bought by an organization that has got significant scale and, and whatsoever else. And in that moment can come a question for the soul of an organization because you might compromise some of the founding principles to get bought by you know whoever can give you that chance for scale. So it might be another Tesco response, which would be an education to me, but you know, some of the big players in this space from you know, Mondelez to you know, the, the great big food players have for a while or certainly still have a legacy of being part of the problem. What would you see as a, an opportunity that you might be interested in for kind of partial acquisition that would enable you to scale? And what are the challenges that you foresee that might come with such a, such a deal in terms of protecting that, which you've obviously done such a brilliant job with? Every time we raise another round of fundraising, we have to answer this question. And it often feels like we're sort of just making up something rather academic because Tessa and I are in this for the long haul. We don't want to get bought out. We don't want to be acquired. It's not something that we sort of sit around thinking about our exit strategy. And I think part of the reason it's an uncomfortable conversation is because it's not obvious how that would work without causing that potential conflict to arise and having to make the sort of difficult trade-offs around you know, what Olio becomes. You know, We're really very lucky right now at this stage to be VC funded, but also to have the space and capital to grow a community based on the free exchange of value, trust, generosity, without a non-commercial mindset, knowing that if we can grow the network to large enough scale, there are other ways that we can monetize, even if it means advertising or other ways, but that, that still keep the spirit of the model of consumption that we've created, which is free and community. So I don't have a good answer for that, if I'm honest. You don't have to. It's not a. It's not a pitch round. <laughs> we do. Yeah, exactly. We have a good point. Um, I mean, we we baked in our mission to our articles of incorporation, and in our view, at the most basic level, 
the more that's shared on oleo, the more that's collected, that extends the life of, of a food or non-food product so that we don't waste our precious resources. That, by definition, is achieving our social and environmental goals. But by definition, it's also increasing our commercial value because it's value that's being exchanged. And in the future, if we just get one, two, five, ten percent of that value somehow, if we can monetize part of the fraction of that value, then that will be a self-sustaining commercial and social sort of machine. We're both growing in lockstep. Great. And I think that's the, sometimes the hardest thing to hold on to, but not only have you seemingly got a, a model that spans both sides of the commercial and the all-important community aspect whilst delivering impact, there's a chance for scaling it. As I think that's sometimes seen as a kind of opt-out or, you know, you can't take this idea to mass unless you follow the principles of the business practice that got us into trouble in the first place. So to hear that you have an answer, both of protecting it right down deep to the core legal binding documents that start the thing, and then to a vision of scale, I, I think that's more than an answer. I think it's a really inspiring answer. You've totally educated me today and I've signed up to the app whilst we were talking, having known about it for years, realizing what a hypocrite I am from so many of the answers that you've given me, but also, you know, here I am advocating you without being on it. So uh, it's just offered me some Dr. Martin boots on my street and I'm about to get my entire street via our WhatsApp onto it as well. So thank you yeah. on so many levels for today. Thank you so much. Like every true pirate, we go away from it going, okay, I need to do that now. Thank you so much. Thank you.